today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who will, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would teach us from your word. For you made the promise that when two or more are gathered under the name of your son's authority, that your spirit would speak through the preaching of the word. And so, God, we ask that you would speak mightily and minister to the areas of our lives where we are in need of the refreshing, healing balm of your word. Strengthen our spirit and make our faith resilient. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys know what the most frequent command God gives in the Bible? Do you know what command God commands his people over and over more than any other command in the entire Bible? Some of you might be tempted to think, oh, maybe it's worship me, or maybe it's give me your money, (laughs) right? Or maybe it's go to church every Sunday or go on missions every summer. No, no, it's none of those. That is not the most frequent. None of those are the frequent commands of the Bible. The one command that you discover as you read through Scripture that God gives his people over and over and over again is this one. Do not be afraid. Out of all the commands God gives, that is clearly, by a long shot, the most frequent command he gives us. Do not be afraid. Now, 
As far as I am concerned, that fact confirms to me, contrary to public opinion, is that the Bible indeed is the word of God. How else can you explain that a book written thousands of years ago, spanning thousands of generations, are still relevant to us to this day? Because I got to tell you, if there is one command that we need to hear from a person who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and who happens to love us a lot, is that we don't need to be afraid. Why? Well, I'm not sure if you are aware, but we are living in a crisis of fear in the world today. Did you know that? We are living in a severe crisis of fear to where some people have said that there is a global epidemic of fear going on right here, right now. Just a few years ago, Dr. Mark Siegel, who is a professor of medicine at NYU Medical, he wrote a book entitled False Alarm, The Truth About the Epidemic of Fear. Listen to how he begins his book. Quote, fear invades our home like never before, affecting more and more people. Newspaper headlines are apocalyptic warnings. Media obsessions fuel our cycle of worry, which burn out only to be replaced by more alarming cycles. The passion and routines of everyday life are our primary defense against this contagious fear. These defenses, however, are being eroded, bombarded by the ongoing doom and gloom of the daily news. Fear is looming larger in our lives. The overall climate of fear is inflated well out of proportion to reality and is its own core danger to society what's he saying i'll tell you what he's not saying he's not saying fear in and of itself is always bad because if you read the book you'll discover that sometimes he does say fear can be a good thing but when fear gets out of control To where you lose control, that's when fear gets bad and that's when you are in danger and the people who are around you could potentially be in danger as well as they are exposed to your reaction to your out-of-control fear. Did you know that the individuals responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, for the anthrax scare in 2001, For the Virginia Tech massacre in 2007, and most recently in 2013, the Navy Yard shooting that killed a bunch of people were all perpetrated by individuals who had paranoid anxiety, fear that was out of control. Oh, yes, indeed. Fear is perhaps arguably the greatest threat against humanity and therefore the greatest hindrance to human flourishing. And given that all of us in here are part of this humanity, we have to ask ourselves, Why is fear like this? Why is this kind of overwhelming, out-of-control fear that we're not immune to, that we all struggle with, why is it so dark? Why is it so sinister to where it could lead us into doing something very, very wretched? Well, that's the question that Jesus is going to answer for us as we continue our sermon series through the parables of Jesus. And as we take a look at this particular story, Jesus is going to parse out, he is going to detail, he is going to define why fear, sinful fear, is so wicked and how as his followers we can avoid that badness and instead reverse it and bring good into the world. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today that this parable teaches us about fear. Number one, your fear causes you to disobey God. Your fear causes you to disobey God. Number two, your fear causes you to believe God is evil. And finally, number three, your fear is conquered by believing the gospel. 
Those are the three headings that we're going to take a look at. So let's begin with heading number one. Your fear causes you to disobey God. Now, before we jump into the specifics and parse out all the details, I want to first give you a big picture panoramic overview of what's going on. So Jesus wants to teach his disciples about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or simply put what it means to be a Christian. And so he tells a parable that involves a master giving three of his servants, okay, talents or money to multiply as he goes off on a business adventure okay now when many people read this parable they tend to get distracted by certain details in the story to the point where they start asking a lot of irrelevant and unnecessary tangent questions questions like well how much is a talent worth these days i'm so curious that's such an odd phrase for money what is it worth right or some people might like wait a minute how come he gives different amounts of money to all the different servants that doesn't seem fair or a more common one that i hear often is wait a minute how come the dude who starts off with the most talents ends up getting even more at the very end of the story that's even messed up why why jesus why now if you're here today and those questions are swirling through your head right now. If you're one of those people, can I just ask for a favor? Let it go. <laughs> just stop thinking about it right now. Just don't even go there because what you're doing is that you're overcomplicating and overthinking the story. No, the main thing that you need to focus on right now is simply that the master gave each of his servants certain responsibilities for them to fulfill. That's all you need to take away. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this is because when you stop overthinking the story, when you start overanalyzing the details, you're able to see clearly a detail that gets easily missed, easily overlooked. It's a detail that surrounds the third servant, the one with the one talent, who happens to be the one that Jesus wants us to pay special attention to. So let's do that now. We're starting in verse 24. We read the following. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Pause right there, your attention, please. So here we read <clears throat> the master of the story approaching his third servant to give an account on whether or not he fulfilled his personal responsibilities to the master. Now, before we go any further, it's important to note that the way Jesus crafts this story to where prior to this moment, we see that the master already approached the other two servants, right? the one with the five and the two talents. And as we read from verses 19 to 23, we come to discover they were successful. They fulfilled their responsibility to their master, so much so that he gives both of them the same glowing review, the same glowing commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little. I will now make you responsible for much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so just by the way that Jesus is directing the story, he's making the reader, us, carry this expectation that the third servant will also be just as faithful, just as successful in executing his responsibilities. But as we just read, it didn't happen, right? Because as we just read, we come to find that this third servant is different from the rest. He's the only one who did not fulfill his responsibilities. He's the only one who did not fulfill his duties. Why? Well, believe it or not, he tells us in his own words, verse 25, I was afraid. And there it is. Fear. Fear. This servant failed in his responsibilities to his master because he was overwhelmed with fear. And how does the master respond to his servant's fear? Verse 26. 
you wicked and slothful servant, or some translation, but you wicked and lazy servant. Whoa, 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 master. What's going on? This guy is angry. He is fuming. He is like almost to the point of being violent. Why is he so mad? If you remember from what I said in previous messages in this series, in the parables, one of the characters who's usually an authoritative figure, like the master, always represents God, right? Which means what? It means Jesus is setting up this idea that according to him, God gets angry. He gets fuming angry at his servants, Christians, when they live with overwhelming fear. Now you hear that and you're just like, that doesn't sound appropriate, right? That sounds kind of messed up. That sounds way overreactionary. Why in the world would God get so angry over something like that? I mean, after all, if a little child, especially your own child, failed to do something that you asked that child to do because they were terrified, you typically wouldn't respond with such anger and with such hostility to the point of risking terrifying that child even more. If anything, you would be compassionate. You would show pity, right? And you would try to nurture the fear out of that child. But this master doesn't do that. He is so angry. He is so hostile. He is so vitriolic. Why is he so upset? Well, if you go to the beginning part of this story and what Jesus says there, you get a big clue. Verse 14. Listen to what it says. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to the other two, to another one, to each according to his ability. To each according to his ability. Did you catch that? Did you hear what the master did? He gave responsibilities to his servants that was in accordance to their ability. In other words, he gave them responsibilities that they were capable of of executing going back to that little child if you ask that little child to come with you to the pool and to jump into the three foot portion of the pool and he starts screaming no 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 i don't want to die and just runs off into the locker room that's understandable right if michael phelps behaved the exact same way in that same scenario that's inexcusable right Because Michael Phelps is more than capable of fulfilling what is being asked of him. And believe it or not, that in principle is why the master is so upset at this servant. Because believe it or not, this master set it up to where his servant could be successful, could thrive, not fail, not give in, right? This master intentionally set up this servant to succeed, okay? And Christian, just to pull it back to you. That is true of your master as well. God has called us, Christian, to a certain set of responsibilities, and he set us up in such a way to where we are able to succeed in those things, especially when you look at the main responsibility he's called us to fulfill. Do you know what that is, by the way? What is the main duty, the main responsibility God has called us to fulfill as his servants? Obedience. The main responsibility that God has set us up to succeed in is to obey him. Am I right? This is why the Apostle John says what he does in 1 John chapter 5. We're starting in verse 3. We read, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are what? Not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. This parable teaches us. That God has set you up just like the master did to his third servant to where you should be able to fulfill your main responsibility of obeying him. But 
This parable also tells us that the reason why many of you, many of us, fail in this area of life is because, like this third servant, we're ruled by fear. We're overwhelmed with fear to where we allow our fear to inhibit us and to keep us from the very things that God has called us to do. Consider these wise and insightful words from Christian psychologist Dr. William Backus. Listen to what he says. More than any other consequences of anxiety is what psychologists call avoidance. Anxiety causes us to avoid something, whatever it is that makes us feel the distressing sensations or think the worrisome thoughts involved of being anxious. Avoidance steals our peace and joy because many of the situations and activities we avoid in the interest of comfort were placed in our lives by God for a purpose. So we end up avoiding the very things we ought to do. Frequently, when we neglect what we ought to do, the motive is uncomfortable anxiety. Because we feel anxious and uncertain of ourselves or of the outcome of some venture, we avoid the activity we know very well we should do. The director of a prominent training school for missionaries once told me that such avoidance is one of the greatest hindrance to people going out to serve God on the mission field. Even when they have a call from God and a thorough preparation for the task, he noted, they hesitate and sometimes avoid their assignments because of fear. Fear of not getting married, fear of getting sick, fear of being kidnapped, and the fear of experiencing rejection. But most of all, fear of the unknown. Most of the situations we avoid ought not to be avoided because what God has called us to be and do in life nearly always moves us towards precisely those places, people, and activities that anxiety pushes us to shun. Do you get it? God hates when his people, his servants, have overwhelming fear because what it ends up doing is that it motivates us to go in the opposite direction that God wants us to go, which is simply another way of saying it causes us to sin. Overwhelming fear leads and guides us to sinning against God. Now, of course, we think, our, we think to ourselves, how is that possible? Especially with what you just said earlier, Pastor John, how is it possible that our God, who sets us up to succeed to where we almost can't fail, nevertheless, we find ourselves constantly failing because we chronically have overwhelming fear that's a great question and to answer let me go to my next point your fear causes you to believe god is evil read again with me verse 24 to 25 but this time let's include 26 and 27 here we go he who also had received the one talent came forward saying master i knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow gathering where you scattered no seed so i was afraid and i went and hid your talent in the ground here you have what is yours but his master answered you wicked and slothful servant you knew that I reaped where I had not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Come on back. Here's what's going on. So this third servant is summoned by the master, and here's what's crazy. This servant has the audacity, he has the nerve to excuse his failure. He has the audacity to excuse his failure. And what was his excuse? Why did he fail? Verse 25, I knew you to be a hard man. In the original Greek, it actually says, I knew you to be a sinister, harsh man. You know what he's saying? He's saying, the reason why I failed, the reason why I disobeyed you is because you are an evil. That's what harsh, that's what sinister, sinister means. A perpetuator of sin, right? He is an evil master. That's what he is saying, right? Why does this servant have such a harsh view of his master? Verse 24, again, he says, You reap where you do not sow and gather where you scattered no seed. Huh? 
what in the world is that? What is this notion of gathering and scattering? Well, thankfully, we have Bible scholars, and I have Bible software that I can look up so easily. So let me tell you what one Bible scholar by the name of Tom Constable down at Dallas Seminary, listen to what he says. He explains what he says, what the servant is saying. The slave meant that the master exploited the labor of others, namely himself and his fellow slaves. This slave evidently felt that his master would not share any of the rewards of his labors with him if he proved successful, but would punish him severely if he failed. What's he saying? He's saying this slave felt that his master put him in a no-win situation to where there would be no positive outcome for him, right? If he succeeded in doubling his master's money, the only thing he would get out of it was the wear and tear of stressing over labor that would end up being unrewarded. If he failed, he would just suffer pain and misery for not multiplying his master's money so it's it's damned if he does damns if he don't so he's stuck in a rock and a hard place it's a no-win situation no positive outcome for him whatsoever right which is why he buries the talent better just to do nothing with it so i can avoid the pain of either outcomes you see that's what he's thinking right he's thinking that no matter what i do i'm gonna be miserable right i'm gonna be stuck bad in scenario a bad in scenario B, right? And because this master put him in this situation, this no win, terrible outcome, no positive outcome for me whatsoever, he concludes, my master is evil. My master is evil. Here's the question. Is this sermon correct? Is he correct in his assessment of his master? Jesus would say, as we continue to study the story, absolutely not. Why? Verses 15 to 18. Let's read it. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a, uh, <clears throat> another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who made the two talents made two talents more. But he who received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Question. If this master is as evil as this third servant, one talent guy really thinks that he is, how come the other two servants don't do the same thing as the one talent guy, right? Why doesn't he, if, if, if this guy is as evil as the third servant thinks that he is, evidenced by him burying the talent, how come the other two don't follow suit, right? Because that action assumes that the, that the master is evil. How come instead they go out valiantly multiplying, right? Why is that? The only possible answer is because they don't see their master the same way as this third servant does. And because that is true, they don't see their situation the same way as the third servant does. You see, the text tells us that the reason why the third servant came to the conclusion that his master was evil was because he saw his situation as dire, right? In other words, his interpretation of the situation he had to deal with determined his view of the master. And that was true of the other two servants as well. But the difference is they didn't see their situation to be as dire. They didn't see their situation to be no positive outcome whatsoever. And I find that so interesting because if you think about it, if there is anyone who should have felt this sort of pressure of no win situation, tremendous risk, right? No positive outcome. It should have been those two, right? Not this guy. Why? Because they were given more talents, right? They had more to lose. They had greater risk. They had harder work to put in, right? 
If there were any people who should have felt the, the level of anxiety and the depths of uncertainty to the point where they didn't want to do anything, it should have been the five-talent guy, especially then the two-talent guy. The person who should have been last in feeling this way, or maybe not at all, is the one-talent dude. What does that tell us? It tells us this guy, this third servant, he has a problem, and it's not his situation. His problem is inside of him, right? It's not the circumstances. It's not the situation that he's in, but a problem within his heart. You know what that problem is? It's the problem of overestimation. The problem of overestimation. Huh? What is that? Again, Dr. William Backus puts it this way. Anxiety results from believing and telling ourselves untruths, which are the opposite of faith or correct belief. Two core misbeliefs usually give rise to our anxiety. First, we believe that something is very likely to turn out badly when in all probability it will turn out tolerably well. Second, we believe that if it does turn out badly, the harm done will be devastating when in fact we can recover from even the worst disasters and go on with a life lived in praise of God. As one psychologist put it, the misbeliefs in anxiety involve overestimating the probability of a harmful event and overestimating the harmfulness of that event. In other words, anxiety results from telling myself that God won't protect me and that I can't expect him to turn bad outcomes into good. What's he saying? He's saying overwhelming fear is overestimating fear. It's fear that overestimates a situation to be more threatening than it really is. And this overestimating fear is driven by two false assumptions. False assumption number one, there is a really, really bad situation that is most likely going to really happen to me. Okay, that's false assumption number one. False assumption number two, when this terrible thing happens to me that I cannot avoid, I'm going to be so broken, I'm going to be so terrified, I'm going to be so shattered that I'll never recover, I'll never get over it, I'll never heal from it, I'll never get over it, and so I'll be stuck in this permanent state of terror and misery and sorrow, right? These are the two assumptions behind our overestimating fear, the same fear that plagued this third servant that was all driven by the assumption that he had of his master. My master is evil. And Christian, when you have that kind of anxiety driven by these two same underlying assumptions, guess what you're saying to your master? Guess what you're saying to your God? You are evil. Susie Davis is a pastor's wife. Years ago, she wrote a book entitled Trusting God in an Unsafe World. And in this book, she talks about how when she was a sophomore in high school, she witnessed her teacher being murdered right in front of her by one of her classmates in cold blood. And the whole point of the book is her trying to recover her faith in God and trying to overcome her fear that came out of this traumatic experience. And at one point of clear honesty, she said this about her view of God, quote, I saw God as a wrecked man because I felt as if he broke his promises to keep bad stuff from crashing in on my life. Though I decided at 12 I wanted Jesus to be my hero, he wasn't exactly the hero I'd hoped for. My kind of hero wouldn't let bad things happen to me. He would love me too much to put me through that kind of hell. I didn't believe that I could, and that I could count on God to take care of me. So along with the tragedy of the murder and all the pain associated with that, I also felt the ache of abandonment. I felt twice cursed. The world is evil and God won't take control. Not even for me. 
This realization terrified me, and it carried with it hard questions. Why, God, why? Why turn your eyes away while the world breaks apart? Why would you abandon me? Why? What is she saying? She's saying, in principle, the same thing this third servant is saying to his master. You are evil. Of course, she will never say it flat out, but you read between the lines. It's clearly there, and I'm willing to bet that those of you in here who can totally relate to this woman, sympathize, empathize, maybe even hear your own voice as I'm reading it out loud, what does that say about you? What does it say about your view of God? Christian, we live in a world that is constantly saying our God is evil, right? We live amongst people who would say Jesus Christ is a wicked God. He is the devil. He is not the son of God. And God has called us out to refute that by the way we live our lives that's driven by our convictions. And if you find yourself resonating with these women's words, which I know you do, as do I, if I'm totally honest, we ask ourselves, how do we overcome this? How do we overcome this misbelief that our God is evil to where it birth these two false assumptions that feed into this overwhelming overestimating fear the answer leads me to my final point your fear is conquered by believing the gospel allow me again once more to draw your attention to verse 24 to 26 but this time take a special notice as to what the master replies to the servant in verse 26 he also who had received the one talent came forward saying master i knew you to be a hard man reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed so i was afraid and i went and hid your talent in the ground here you have what is yours but his master answered you wicked and slothful servant you know that i reap where i have not sown and gather where i scattered no seed now i want you to notice something i want you to notice how in verse 26 the master sort of repeats he echoes what the third servant says in verse 24. And the reason why I say he sort of repeats is because he leaves one statement of the servant out in verse 26. What portion of the servant's statement does he leave out? I know you to be a hard man, right? He doesn't repeat it. It's missing conspicuously, right? It's almost as if the master is not even going to dignify that servant's statement by repeating it in his own words. And I think that's very, very profound because I think what Jesus is trying to say there is that this master is refuting what this servant is saying about him, which also means the one whom this master represents, God is refuting what we sometimes feel in our hearts. God is not evil. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying God is not evil, period. Now, For many of us, it isn't a period. This is not finished. Nothing is resolved, right? Because you're still not convinced. And one of the reasons why you're still not convinced is because of what you read in the story itself down in verse 30. What ends up happening to this third servant? What does this master end up doing in verse 30? Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into their place, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know what Jesus is referring to here. That darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, what is this place? It's hell, right? It's obvious. In fact, when you read through the Gospels and he's referring to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer, he's always referring to hell, H-E double hockey sticks, right? Hell, that place of eternal torment. That's what he's talking about. And when we remember that this master represents God, the point is clear. 
God finds overwhelming fear as a hell-worthy offense. In other words, God sees servants of his, like you and me, struggling with overwhelming fear as something as deserving of hell. In fact, Jesus confirms this when we read the list of people that he identifies as those who will end up in hell in Revelation 21. Listen to what he says there. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I, Jesus, will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards... Unbelievers, the corrupt murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is the fiery lake of burning suffer. This is the second death. Notice the first person he puts at the top of the list who ends up in hell. Cowards. People who are driven by overwhelming fear. Right? Now, I know that when you hear that, that just sounds absurd, and it makes the parable sound incredibly absurd. Because follow with me here. This master hates the fact that his servant thinks that he's evil. And so what does he do to refute that claim? He sends the servant to outer darkness, right? Does that make sense to you? And remember, this master, again, is God. So basically, God is saying, look, I don't like the fact that you think I'm an evil God. And so what am I going to do to deny that? I'm going to send you who think that to hell. Is that the best way to convince someone that you're not evil by sending them to the most miserable place ever? No. How does that make sense? It doesn't. Unless you remember the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says hell is a real place. In fact, it's the most dire, the most hopeless, the most miserable, and therefore the most unrecoverable traumatic situation you could ever be in. It's true. The gospel goes on to say, however, that you and I and everyone who walks on this earth, we deserve to go there. We deserve that situation to come upon us. You know why? Because we're sinners. We're wretched sinners. Even if we have no fear operating in our lives, you know, if, if we somehow were able to live a fearless life, do you think we'll stop sinning? No, right? Do you think people sin because they're always afraid? No, they're, they sin because they're wicked, selfish, narcissistic, perverted, Right? They have a God complex. Hell is a real place. It's the most dire place. It's the most traumatic space. You can never recover. And it's the place we all should go. But the gospel also says God loves us so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ, so that he could take all the brunt, all the full punishment of your sins, past, present, and future, including your overestimating, overwhelming fear. He took that on for you out of love for you and the bible goes on to say that he did this while you still saw him as your enemy while you still saw him as evil paul says in romans 5 starting in verse 7 very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die but god demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us the gospel says that God loved you so much that he did the unthinkable. He did what he needed to do to spare you from the worst situation of all, the worst situation that is far worse than any situation that we have to face in this life, in this moment, right? He spared us from hell. You see, when Jesus is referencing hell here, he's not simply saying 
right? That fear is a hell-worthy offense, though it is. He's also foreshadowing for his disciples then of what he will do, and he's also reminding his disciples now, all of you, of what he's done for us when he came to be our Savior substitute by dying on the cross so that we are spared from hell. You see? He placed himself in the most darkest, dire, threatening situation of all by being our substitute Savior. That's what the gospel teaches us. Now, Christian, do you realize what this means? It means if God loved you so much to where he ensured, right, that you would never have to face the most dire and threatening situation of all, hell, even though you deserve to, can't you be confident that he would also make sure that you don't go through something not as bad as hell in this life here and now? Or if he does permit it, that he's powerful enough to help you through it just like he was more than powerful enough to get you through the condemnation status that you deserved. Is it possible that hell could be the most encouraging thing that you need because it gives you perspective? It reminds you that if God loved me enough to take me out of the worst situation I could ever have been in, even though I deserved to go through it, wouldn't he love me also to make sure that I don't go through something nearly as bad? If his love is so great, clearly he should be able to do something that requires less love, right? Do you see? See, when you believe that in your heart of hearts, when you practically hold on to that conviction, you're changed. You grow in fearlessness. You're able to face situations that God is calling you to go through, not avoid them, right? You're able to obey God to go and be the kind of person that he's called you to do and to be. He is able to help you overcome these things, right? To where you're able to now live a growing, fearless life. To where no longer are you over-catastrophizing things in your head, right? But you're able to move forward. Next Sunday, I'm not going to be here because... uh, uh, that beautiful couple over there is getting married, right? They're going to Mexico, right? And they asked me to come. And, you know, I can't bring my wife over there because, can I? <laughs> she can't go because she's carrying precious cargo in her body right now, right? And Zika is a real dangerous thing. That's right. Number five is coming. What is wrong with me? <laughs> Right, But my daughter, Kara, just when I thought I was out, right? My daughter, Kara, my oldest, is coming with me. And you know, initially, I didn't want her to go. You know why? I thought of the movie Taken, right? (laughs) I was terrified, right? I ain't no Liam Nielsen, you know. I don't think Liam Nielsen is known Liam Nielsen either. What was I doing? Overestimating everything. I was calling my master evil. Could it be that maybe you're doing the same every time you let fear guide you, lead you, govern you to disobey your master? I want to end today's message with some next steps, some practical next things that you can do to overcome the over-anxious, over-pervasive fear that we all struggle with. Number one, read a good book on hell. (laughs) That's such a terrible way to put it. Read a book on hell, a 
Bible-saturated book on hell. There's some terrible books on hell, by the way. Don't read anything by a guy named Rob Bell. Okay, just avoid that dude at all costs. Don't read anything by Joel Osteen because, by the way, I don't even know if he believes in hell. So if he wrote a book on hell, it's very suspicious. Two books that I would recommend. The most encouraging book on hell ever. It's pretty awesome. By Thor Ramsey. Great name. Number two, Sinners in the Hands of a Good God by David Klatfelder. Why am I telling you to read a book on hell? Because I don't think a lot of us understand the doctrine of hell. And because we don't understand the doctrine of hell, it doesn't provide the kind of smelling salt effect that God intended for us to have to where we can wake up and not get so crazy. Right? When you stop believing in a real hell, you know what you do? You take situations that aren't hell and you impose hell-like fears upon it. Right? It's the same thing. When you stop believing in a God is true, you start imposing God-like attributes to other people, celebrities or, or status and whatever. You do the same thing. So read a good book on hell so that it can be that kind of way of waking you up and giving you perspective so that you don't impose fear that's only reserved for hell, a fear that you shouldn't have to face. Number two. Take a three-by-five card. Write out, the, uh, <clears throat> write out the situation and scenario that you're terrified of. I did this recently with Taken and Kara and all that. On the other side, write the following. This situation is not hell. And because God loved me so much to save me from the real hell, especially when I deserved hell, I can be confident that he loves me enough to either spare me from this situation or give me the grace to get through it and become a better person and not a bitter person. I didn't include this also, but in addition to that, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, read verses 19 to 31 as you do that. Just write Romans 8, 19 to 31. Meditate on it, right? Every time you find yourself feeling verklempt, every time you're feeling worried, bust it out. Memorize that passage in Romans 8 and take a look at that, that phrase, okay? Finally, number three, share some of these fears with your Oikos group members. Tell them, hey, I'm freaking out. I think I'm going to have to put electric spears into someone's knees because I'm so terrified that my daughter's going to get kidnapped in Cancun, right? So that they can pray for you, so that they can kind of wake you up and say, hey, PJ, Romans chapter 8, don't you remember? This isn't hell. You're right. Kara, let's go. Get the sunscreen, right? Invite other people into your ministry who can encourage you and remind you of the truth. Your God is not evil. Your God is good. Your God loves you, and he is powerful. Who can stand against the Lord Almighty? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to hold on to this conviction and truth. So many of us have been ruined. So many of us have been compromised. So many of us have fallen into the snare of Satan to where he has showed his teeth, and we have been more terrified than we should be. Father, He is no match to the Lion of Judah. And Lord, help us to remember that, especially as we live in this city, as we raise children, as we are exposed to the news. God, help us to truly become people who grow in fearlessness because we are convinced that you are powerful and you are good. Oh God, would you free us from these things so that we can be the people who undermine the epidemic of fear that is so pervasive in this world. Oh God, hear us now, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.